Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Avi Kravitz. Today, I chat with Rappaport News Editor Joshua Friedman. We cover the full gambit of diamond industry news, including some holiday retail predictions, trends in the lab-grown diamond market, the Botswana de Beers negotiations, the Kimberley Process Plenary, and much more. There's a lot going on. We hope you gain some insight to understanding it all from our discussion. So please enjoy my chat with Joshua. Hi, Joshua. Welcome back to the podcast. It's already November. Can you believe how quickly this year has flown? It has gone very quickly, yes. Yes. Holiday season always seems to be coming up. Right. I remember talking about New Year's resolutions, and now we're talking about our expectations for the holiday season already, or the beginning of the holiday season already, considering that retailers consider November, December as their official holiday sales. Yes, I should probably go back and see if I kept any of my New Year's resolutions. I'm guessing not. Right. I can't remember what mine were. It would be an interesting listen. I think it was an early January podcast that we did with Sonia, committing ourselves to tasks that we probably were unrealistic. But on our next discussion, look back at those. But it's a bit premature to look back at the year that was. We, we are looking at that for our next magazine. But at this time of the year, we tend to look forward to what we can expect for the holiday season. And the focus is very much on retail, although our news feed has been in the last week or two fairly mining centric, I think, to be as sales and Botswana negotiations and various news items that have come up. And we'll get back to those. But I think maybe it's um, appropriate to start with those retail expectations because this is now the season. This is where we're at at the moment. And so what is your read on the jewelry market, um, particularly in the US, I think is where the industry sort of hinges its hopes on for this time of the year? Yeah. So the general trend we're seeing is that there's a reasonable amount of optimism for the holiday season. We just, in the last couple of days, got an update from the National Retail Federation, the NRF, that predicted sales, this is not just jewelry, sales, retail sales in general would increase by 6 to 8% year on year for the holiday season. And this is, it's interesting because there are a lot of economic issues going on at the moment. There's inflation and it's a question of to what extent inflation is actually going to impact consumer spending. But NRF position seems to be that, well, there will be some impact from inflation and consumers will be using their savings, or at least the consumers that have savings will be using their savings to spend. And that's why they're predicting growth. So it's not going to be, you know, last year was obviously a sort of a dramatically strong holidays because of the comparison with the previous year and the fact that everyone was going kind of going back to normality. So it's not, not quite as noteworthy as that, but it's, I think people are expecting some modest growth. Um, and I think jewelry will probably be the same thing as that. As, again, it's really, it's also a case of splitting up the different sectors and the inflation is going to hit the mid market a lot more than the upper end. Well, I was a bit surprised by the optimism. And it's not only the NRF who's there. You've got to also sort of take the role of the NRF into account. They're a lobby for the retail sector. And so they want to promote some optimism about the market. But one would expect that they would have some balance in the reporting. But I was quite surprised by the optimism. And it's not only them, Deloitte also put out quite a fairly optimistic outlook for the holiday season. I think they said 4 to 6% for overall retail. And considering the chatter that we hear within the industry, at least, there seems to be within the trade more concern about the economic impact on holiday sales than on these sort of predictors or objectors of the holiday season. And so 
I think also at the retail end, among the jewelry companies, there are hints of caution. You know, De Beers itself said, you know, they, they're looking at the economic, the economic activity and, you know, there's inflation. There are rising interest rates and volatile stock markets also, you know, having an impact on sentiment and the wealth effect that that might have on discretionary spending. So I think we got to take these predictions in context, maybe, and temper them a little bit. Yeah. And often this is, you know, one of the best indicators for, there's a few indicators, but one of the best indicators on this sort of outlook sentiment thing is how the mining companies and their production plans, when things are looking negative, they start giving out, giving more cautious production plans. And that hasn't happened. They've mostly been sticking to their plans or saying that production might be at the lower end of what we expected, but they're not making any dramatic changes. And I actually think De Beers put it quite well in their sort of typically optimistic but cautious way in an interview that we did with them. Esther Oberbeck, who is their senior vice president for strategy, analytics and insights, said essentially that it's going to be a very competitive season for diamond jewelry. So there's inflation and the cost of living will have an impact. And she said, our expectation is not totally negative. I don't know whether that's how you interpret that. But she pointed out that every week seems to bring different facts. So it's really difficult to know what's going to happen. So I think everyone's kind of waiting to see how the holiday turns out. As ever, we won't really know until the first few weeks of January. But to rule, it's, it's kind of a mixed picture. Well, that comment that it's more competitive is an interesting one. There are two things that I've picked up on in the last few weeks from the retail side. The first is that we're seeing more sort of luxury brands that are not typically jewelry, involved in jewelry launch jewelry collections. You know, Prada is one, for example, that has recently launched a high-end jewelry line and diamond jewelry line with natural diamonds. And what that does is it brings more competition for specific goods within the trade on that higher end. And I think we are seeing sort of those pockets of optimism and positive trending in the high end, also also within the trade. There's, this week, uh, as we're recording, we just sort of, is the last day of the Gem Genève show. And I, I was actually thinking separately to the retail story, but there's certain shows that give the industry and the market a bit of a boost in sentiment. And JCK, I think, is one. Maybe the old, you know, the Hong Kong shows in the past were another. But I think the Gem Genève show is kind of, although it's a small sort of niche, it's evolving into that position that it's a segment of the market that everyone wants to get into. It's catering to sort of the higher end sort of niche. And there seems to be some positivity around that category. And the other point that I wanted to bring up about retail is that we are hearing that more retailers are taking goods on memo. And there seems to be more focus on memo than usual. And that to me indicates some caution amongst the retailers that they don't want to own inventory. It's a way for them to hedge their bets on owning inventory and still have goods to show their customers. And so I think when times are, are a little more uncertain, we would see more memo activity going on. I don't know if you would agree with that, um, Joshua, or not. Um, I don't have the information to know about whether that trend is happening, but that definitely does. If it is true, then it would certainly reflect more uncertainty and it would be probably it reduces because that's not good news for the dealers and manufacturers. Right. I mean, they're happy to move goods and then at the end of the day to see what sort of sells through, you know, comes from the memo goods. Last year, holiday season, there was a strong sell through of those memo goods. And so it, it, was a, it was a good thing for those dealers and manufacturers who were selling. And then there are those memo houses as well that focus on this type of business and they need inventory. 
And so we see a lot of inventory in the midstream at the moment, and maybe that's good for the memo houses. They need inventory to supply their customers. And I mean, on that point you raised about the, the high-end brands, you told me before this podcast, don't talk about the rough market, you'll bore our listeners. Um, but one of the things that we've seen in the rough market is much stronger performance in the rough under one carat compared with over one carat. And the explanation I've got from some of the rough traders and stuff is that any rough that's producing high quality melee is selling well because the high-end brands, US and European high-end brands are still buying this high-end melee for their jewelry, maybe for watches as well, I'm not sure. So that's kind of what's leading to this split that we've seen. The larger larger goods are weaker and the smaller goods are stronger. So it does seem that this, there's many indications of this, that high-end brands are still selling pretty well. Yeah, and I think also then on very larger stones, seems to be optimistic as well. But we were also talking as we were discussing this topics to discuss, and maybe that plays into the trends that we're seeing in the lab-grown market as well. Although I don't think that that there is that influence, but it seems that the lab-grown industry is evolving towards the largest zones rather than the smaller goods, sort of eating into some market share of the natural diamond industry, which is contrary to what we were expect, what everyone predicted initially. If we look back four or five years ago, the projections were that lab-grown would take market share in the melee and the smaller goods, but the larger one, you know, the one-carat certified goods for the bridal market, for example, would not be competitive between the two industries. But what we're seeing lately, you know, there's been a few news items in the last few weeks about the lab grown space, and they've all sort of focused on those one carat plus diamonds. Bill's going in, you know, expanding its offering of um, one carat plus uh, lab grown and sort of touching on the bridal market in particular. Swarovski also launching a new collection of lab grown diamonds. Yeah, I think I'm never sure whether the, you know, if you go back, say, five years and when lab grown starts becoming much bigger deal, whether the predictions were influenced also by where people wanted the market to go. But it's certainly, as you say, the demand for lab grown for engagement rings is much stronger than those predictions would uh, would have made you think. And yeah, Swarovski have said that they're, they're launching their lab grown collection across many of, I think it was 200 stores in the US sales have said they're offering, that they're now going to be offering one to three carat lab-grown diamonds. There's certainly a pocket of US demand that is very interested in lab-grown engagement rings for whatever, either because of the price or because of a perceived environmental advantage, an ethical advantage. But yes, it's definitely going a different way from how kind of the core of the natural diamond market was putting it a few years ago. I think this holiday season will be an interesting one. You know, last year, both the natural diamond industry and the lab grown industry were had good growth. And so the argument was that, you know, you see both can grow in tandem and it's sort of one plus one equals three for the, for the jewelry market as both have grown. And so the argument again was that the lab grown industry wasn't taking market share away, that both can grow and complement each other. But it was an anomaly year. It was a high growth year across the, the diamond supply chain coming out of COVID and, and through that recovery, which surprised everyone and was positive for everyone. And this year is a different environment. And so I think it will maybe show a different story. Again, I'm in two minds where the lab grown in market is big enough yet to really show a growth in market share versus natural diamonds. We can see growth within the lab-grown space, but maybe this year, because it's a more cautious and uncertain economic environment, that we will see that a different dynamic between the two segments.
And you'd also think that if there's a, if the environment is, if the issue is inflation and that's, and if it's true that the mid market is what's suffering most, then you would expect a bit of a shift in outgrown in that, in that segment. And what we are reading from our colleague, um, Edan Golan, for example, who checks the lab grown market and prices quite closely, he's been saying quite a bit that prices are going down, but there is growth in demand, which is a bit of an anomaly in that sense. So it'll be interesting to see how long that dynamic lasts. But Joshua, to change the subject a bit, um, again, this last two weeks, I think the main sort of story that's crossed our inboxes and news feed has been De Beers-Botswana relationship. And there's been a bit of a focus on Botswana in the past week or two. There was the Kimberley process plenary there. And also a news story out, I think, was the, the Sunday Standard in Botswana saying that the government was ready to ditch De Beers in their words as the two are negotiating a new contract. And new partnership deal that's been delayed for the last two years, really. And so there's a lot to read into that. The Botswana government dismissed the story as nonsense, and President Masisi said so himself at a conference that took place this last week in Botswana. Were there any sort of half-truths that you may have picked up in that story? What was your take? And it's often when these sort of stories come out, there's a tendency to think that where they spoke, there's fire type of thing. Yes, yes. So strange that this article wasn't, it's not actually a freely available on the Sunday Standard website. I think you have to be a subscriber to read it. But the headline, without getting too much into kind of analysis of how exactly the story was written, but that, that the headline did contain this word ditch and it, it actually, and it, but it also contained a question mark. So it was Misisi to ditch De Beers in favor of H, HB Antwerp and Lucara question mark. But the actual article was not quite as strident as that. It was really that De Beers is, uh, the, the Botswana is expected to sell its large and exceptional diamonds through Okavango Diamond Company, which is a parastatal. I feel like parastatal is a word we only use in the context of Okavango Diamond Company. They would then sell it to this partnership between HB and Lucara. Famously now have a deal over production to the Karoe mine, which is Lucara's mine also in Botswana, where they all 10.8 carat diamonds and larger in the rough get sold. Lucara is obliged to sell them to HB Antwerp, which is a manufacturer, obviously. In, in, and then Lucara in turn gets, in, in return for this obligation to sell, it gets a cut of the polish, the final polish revenues. And this seems, well, we don't have a huge amount of information, but it, from what we hear, it seems like this is a fairly successful arrangement. And there have been rumors for many months that Botswana was interested in doing something like this with the beers. And the kind of smoke without fire type thing is that it could be that doing this sort of arrangement through Okavango is an option that might have been on the table at some point. And the final agreement may have some sort of characteristics of it. But word that was in the phrasing of that headline that Botswana is going to ditch De Beers is that's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. And that is what was very fiercely denied by both De Beers and Botswana. Right. But I think it is interesting, the idea, and I agree, I, I, you know, I think it's a ridiculous headline, kind of clickbaity. But, you know, there is something that's holding up the negotiations between Botswana and De Beers. And my thought has always gone to those big stones. You know, we know that Botswana wants to get more revenue and better access to those larger special stones. And there are a number of these deals in the rough market. You know, Lucara selling its specials of 10.8 carats and larger through HB. The Carper has an, an agreement with um, Safdico, which is tied into the Graf companies that they sell those, uh, you know, certain amounts of their specials through them. 
And so it makes sense to me the the idea that um, that Botswana would be wanting to to have greater access and and gain greater revenue through the polished of the specials that are coming out of the De Beers Botswana production. And so there is a we know there's a strong relationship between De Beers and the Botswana government. They showed it again at this conference that they held in the last week or two. But at the same time, there is something behind the scenes that's holding up these negotiations. And to me, it makes sense that there's, you know, there's always something on the table, the beneficiation issue, um, you know, how much, how do the parties grow the beneficiation industry in Botswana? And then there's those, uh, you know, how do you gain more revenue from the rough sales as well? And, and it makes sense to me that those big stones would be on the table in some way to change the structure of how those goods are sold. On the other hand, you know, I spoke with Bruce Cleaver this week, and I'm working on an analysis about his term in office and the changes that have taken place at De Beers. And he made the point that, you know, there are many issues going on with the negotiations. It's also the licensing agreements for the mines. And so there's, there are a number of moving parts and these things do take time. So we'll give them the benefit of the doubt again, I guess. But as we mentioned, there was a lot of activity in Botswana this last week or two. And the focal point was the Kimberley Process Plenary Meeting that is always gone as a lot of interest, but generally turns out to be a non-event for the for us anyway in covering it. Did it catch your eye at all? Was there anything of interest at the at the Kimberley Process uh, meeting this week? So overall, no. I think it does tend to be the same issues come up and we're usually focused around calls to reform the Kimberley process. And as it's been widely publicized, this very rarely results in any reform because of the way that the KP works and the fact that we have a consensus of all the member governments for any significant change. As of this podcast, the only kind of official information that we have is the Edward Asher, the, the World Diamond Council president of the WDC, is the representative of the industry, the diamond trade, at the Kimberley process. And you know, as usual, he calls for reform of the Kimberley process. In his speech, he made a few interesting points about the Russia situation. This has obviously been something that's been discussed more behind the scenes, I think, than in front of the scenes at the KP since the war started. He pointed out that the language he used was that the Kimberley process should be neutral, but we are not morally... Well, it's actually which was, he was talking on the, part, but on the behalf of the World Diamond Council, not the KP. We are neutral, but we are not morally indifferent. It's kind of the industry's position on Russia is a little, little unclear, given that we're not dealing with conflict diamonds in the regular sense. And it's kind of, it's, it's largely escaped. This issue has largely escaped public discussion at the KP. Most of the discussion has been on more disasters. Yeah, whenever there's a crisis within the industry or the industry's challenged on its supply chains, you know, it generally exposes the shortcomings of the Kimberley process. And in this case, Russia is a member of the Kimberley process. We saw pictures on, we saw the representatives of El Rosa and the Russian government arriving in Johannesburg on their way to, to Gaborone for the Kimberley process meeting. And then the Kimberley process needs a unanimous a unanimous vote to influence or to change policy on anything. And so it seems that the Russia's status within the, the Kimberley process wasn't on the table this time. As you said, it, it was mentioned through Edward Asher, who heads the World Diamond Council. But 
again, it just, it highlights how the industry sort of, industry's moved beyond the Kimberley process and is relying more on other organizations like the Responsible Jewelry Council. There's the new Watch and Jewelry Initiative that some of the brands have launched. And, and then, of course, the various sort of traceability programs that have taken effect in recent years that are sort of... Um, Rec that in the background recognize that the, the Kimberley process is not enough and that, that the industry needs to take its um, destiny into its whole own hands in terms of ensuring the ethical sourcing of its product. And so um, the Kimberley process now is moving, the, the chairmanship is moving to Zimbabwe, which which is also interesting and, and somewhat controversial. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see what uh, what that brings in the, in the coming year. Again, probably a lot of noise. Um, but also a lot of not much happening in its effectiveness, I'm, I'm afraid to say. So Joshua, before we wrap up for, for today, um, there were one or two interesting and fun kind of stories that caught our eyes. Anything that you, that were highlighting our newsfeed from your side this last week or two? Yeah, there was a very interesting story actually about a, an emerald ring that is going up for auction at Sotheby's. The emerald is 6.25 carats. But that's not really the big thing here. The big thing here is that it came from a, ship, a shipwreck from 1622. And incredibly, this emerald remained under the water for 400 years or so and was discovered in 1985 off the coast of Florida and is now going to be sold at an auction on December the 7th. Emerald that has been underwater for 400 years, I would assume that you don't need to do any tests for its natural or lab-grown status. Yeah, and it's another example of how the, in this case, it's not diamonds, but how gemstones and diamonds in general produce these sort of exciting, mysterious stories. I actually picked up on another story involving an emerald that Leia Merovich, our senior reporter, covered. And she always gets excited about large emeralds that come to the market. And in this case, Gemfields has put up 187,775 carat cluster, or maybe the correct way to say it is it's a cluster containing that many carats of emeralds at its rough tender that's, um, that's coming up. It's called the Kafubu cluster. Gemfields has its Hachem mine in Zambia. And it's just an enormous piece of mineral an emerald and it'll be interesting to see what that goes for they are expecting some record price for a single emerald piece so it's not a you know how would you describe the difference between a cluster and a piece of rough emerald but this cluster sort of has a number of pieces of rough emerald attached to it and it's quite a sight i think i would love to see it in person but it'll be interesting to see what that goes for and um, what the buyer does with it as well would be fairly interesting that's the emerald market. It's a, it's a whole different world out there. So Joshua, thank you so much for your insights as always. It's, um, it's always fun and interesting talking to you about the market. Likewise, I've enjoyed it. Great. And as we move into the holiday season now, we wish all our listeners a successful season and lots of growth and happiness from that going into the holidays. So thank you for listening, everyone. And we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rapport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on diamonds.net, follow Rapport Group on Instagram, and follow Rapport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.